Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. All right, guys, so welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast, where each week I have the chance to speak to some of the most recognized and inspirational faces around the world, making a true impact. Today, I couldn't be more excited than to welcome somebody whose work has impacted millions worldwide. And with what we're about to find out today, from my own experience with delving into the mind and everything that has come to light through the Imperfectly Perfect campaign, I am excited, trust me. So first and foremost, I'm going to introduce today's special guest. His passion can be found at the intersection of the latest findings from the fields of neuroscience, epigenetics, and quantum physics to explore the science behind spontaneous remissions. He uses that knowledge to teach people how to heal their bodies of health conditions, make significant changes in their lives, and evolve their consciousness. Since 2010, he has partnered with scientists and universities to perform extensive research on the effects that meditation has on the brain and body. During his advanced retreats around the world, his team has gathered more than 8,000 brain scans, quantitative QEEG, and 4,000 heart rate variability measurements in an attempt to correlate the effects that sustained elevated emotions and self-regulation have on heart and brain function, immune response, and overall mind-body health. He and his team have also studied gene expression, protein regulation, immune response, neurotransmitter changes, telomere length, and variations in bioactive cellular metabolic particles in both novice and advanced meditators. As a New York Times bestselling author, researcher, lecturer, and corporate consultant, his research has led him to develop a practical formula to help people transform their lives. So firstly, welcome to the show, the one and only Dr. Jody Spencer. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. That was quite an introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm just so so grateful that you've uh, you've taken time to come onto the Imperfectly Perfect campaign. And um, may I say what an unbelievable honor to be chatting with somebody whose work I've admired for so long now. And what we're going to be talking about with the conscious, subconscious, everything that I've done through the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how it's come and the characteristics through your formula and touching on spirituality. I just can't wait to get into this. But as I say, you've done some truly incredible research work and findings over the years. And I'd love it if you didn't mind just to take our audience briefly back to the beginning of your own journey before we delve into some of the scientific findings you've uncovered this year, because you didn't always work in the field of neuroscience, right? I know that you initially had your own practice as a chiropractor and you later stepped into the field of neuroscience and epigenetics. Do you mind taking us back to that turning point that led you into studying spontaneous remissions? Sure. I mean, you know, for me, I've always uh, been a big fan of human potential. I always believe that there's more uh, to reality than this dream. And, um, you know, I, I think in order for some of us to wake up, we need a wake up call. And, and I was uh, I got my own wake up call and got run over by a truck in a triathlon and broke a bunch of bones in my back. And um, prognosis was probably I'd never walk again. And they, they were four surgeons recommended some radical surgical procedures. And um, it was 1986, and I, I don't think in 1986 many people said no to doctors, but for some reason I just couldn't bring myself uh, to that choice because I was a young guy and very athletic, and I just thought maybe there's a chance that my mind could heal my body. I mean, if I don't get the surgery, um, uh, and I could still be paralyzed, but if I get the surgery, I could still be paralyzed or you know be injured. So I decided against it, and it worked, and... and um, it worked way better than I anticipated, actually. And, and it got me thinking about what in the heck happened to me. I mean, how did that happen? How, I mean, there's got to be a scientific explanation for it. And I couldn't find those answers in conventional texts. I couldn't find the answers in, in a lot of the, the, the conventional understanding of why health and science was really talking about the way human beings heal. So I only could find those answers when I started looking at some of the new sciences. And the new sciences had everything to do with this concept called neuroplasticity, our brain's ability to change its connections by learning and experiencing and making different choices and demonstrating different behaviors. There's, there's physical and biological changes. And, and then <clears throat> uh, what if the mind does affect the body? And so I started looking at psychoneuroimmunology. And there's just a host of great research to show how our thoughts 
actually become our body's biggest enemy. <laughs> not, not really heal us, but actually uh, weaken the organism. And, and then I started looking at the effects of stress. And then I saw that stress downregulates genes and creates disease. And so then I had to look at gene understanding. And then I got into epigenetics and, and it made sense to me that we're not doomed to our genes, that there, it's just a code. It's just, it's a library of potentials, a parts list of possibilities. And so is it possible to change our gene and gene expression? Well, when I saw in the vertebrae in my spine that were pretty, you know, six of them, you know, compressed and all of a sudden they got some normal height back. I, I just could, I thought maybe there's a gene that I signaled and genes make proteins and proteins make structure and proteins are responsible for function and physiology. And the expression of proteins is the expression of life. And so I thought, God, I must have been able to do something to my gene expression because the protein, the protein scaffolding of my bones had changed. So <clears throat> then I started thinking, well, how does a cut heal or how does something heal? And I started looking at the text again and reading how a cut heals. And I just thought that can't be the way it works. It just isn't that mechanical. It's not reductionistic like that. It's much more vitalistic. And so when I was a kid, my father was very keen on me going to medical school, but the more I came close to that model, the more it was mechanistic for me. And I was more of a vitalist. I, I believe that there's, there's, a, there's something else that's giving the cell uh, instructions and, and, and information. And so then you can't explain how a cut heals without understanding quantum physics and how energy works. And then I started entering this world of quantum and then, wow, um, somehow the mind has an effect on reality. And well, it works for the really tiny with subatomic particles, but how do we get it to work for large things like planets and real life events? Can your observation begin to change an outcome in your life? And, and uh, so I sold everything and uh, I had a great practice and uh, super busy in Southern California and worked with uh, some of the professional teams there. And, and I just gave it all up. You know, I, you know, I wasn't the same guy anymore. And uh, I just wanted to figure out how this all happened. So I went back to school, started studying again. And then I started thinking, God, there, is there anybody else that, that um, may have had a similar experience like me? And, and so I started interviewing people that had spontaneous remissions from diseases, people that were treating conventionally and unconventionally. And they were either staying the same or getting worse. And all of a sudden they got better. So I wanted to know what the cause was that was producing the effect. Now, listen, I was a Puritan at the time. I exercised, I ate really well. I mean, I was, I made my own food, my own breads. I mean, I did, I was a Puritan, you know, and exercise, I had a martial arts studio, I had a yoga studio, I did triathlons. I was, was in a pretty good, pretty good place. And um, when I started interviewing these people, I thought that they would be doing something that was in common, right? And and I, it wasn't diet, you know, which really surprised me, you know, and it, some of there's diet, some work when they did certain dietary things and it wasn't Pilates or yoga or whatever, which I was really into. And, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't figure out what I found out was really a lot to do with the mind. Like it was a lot to do with the mind, which was my experience. And so after interviewing all these people, I found out what the commonalities were that allowed them to go from a state to a really healthy state. And I teased them out and there were four common things. And, and when I started understanding what those things were, the scientists in me said, okay, uh, if this is true, then it should work on other people. So mm -hmm. how could I create a way to have people understand the science of transformation and change and how they possibly created a health condition? Is it possible then to change it? And would they have to change something about themselves in order to change their health or their life? Because nothing changes in our life until we change. That's the end of the story. And a lot of people think they can stay the same person and that their life will change and it doesn't work that way. So I started looking closely at our personality, how we think, how we act, how we feel. And is it possible if a person changes the way they think, the way they act and the way they feel, if they change their personality, will it change their personal reality? Will it change their health? And so, that was one of the fundamental principles that there was a reinvention of self. Uh, and then there was the other important thing, which was so valuable, which was breaking the habit of being the old self, 
<clears throat> and a habit is a redundant set of automatic unconscious thoughts, behaviors, and emotions that that's acquired through repetition. It's when you do something so many times, your body now knows how to do it better than your conscious mind. Now it becomes a subconscious program. So that's 95% of who we are. So the process of change then requires that we become conscious of our unconscious self. So conscious of those hardwired thoughts, uh, those automatic habituations and those emotional reactions and conditionings. So conscious that we don't go unconscious and return to that same personality because the disease and the gene expression and the biology will stay the same. If we can change that and sustain it and begin to fire and wire new thoughts and begin to rehearse new ways of being in our mind and, and begin to teach our body emotionally what a future event will feel like before it happens. If the environment signals the gene according to epigenetics and the end product of an experience in the environment is an emotion, could we signal genes ahead of the environment? Is that what these people did? Is that what I did? So. I did my best to demystify the process and use it on people to see how if they could change. And for the first couple of years, not a whole lot happened. I mean, people felt better at the end of a workshop. And then after a couple of years, we started seeing people step out of wheelchairs and we started people seeing people, cancers going to remission right in a weekend event. And that's when I knew that I had to start measuring. And that's when I knew I had to really look to see what was going on in the brains of these people. So I assembled the team of scientists and researchers. We, we, well, we've measured over 12,000 brains now, maybe even more than that. And I wanted to see people's brains before they came to an event, put them through the rigor of transformation, keep them in the same environment, give them the right information, have them understand what they're doing, understand why they're doing it, use science as the language to demystify the process so the how gets easier and assign meaning to it. And if you can put intention and meaning behind it, could we get better results? And so we want to also scan brains in real time. I wanted to see your brain, Glenn's brain in a meditation when he is either overthinking and overanalyzing or he's learning how to suppress his analytical mind and get into the operating system where those subconscious programs exist. And the word meditation, really one of the important elements is to teach people how to self-regulate and create more coherence and change their brain waves so they can really begin to reprogram themselves. And it means to become familiar with, to become so conscious of the old self that you don't go unconscious to it, and so familiar with a new self that you become that person. And so we started measuring heart rate variability, and we wanted to see when a person's frustrated and patient, um, resentful, their brain waves get a little bit aroused and their heart beats out of order, and now they're they're out of balance, their, their physical and mental health is off. And that in that state, when we're incoherent, <laughs> biologically we're incoherent in our mental, mental health state. So is there a way to create more health and more balance? And we came up with an understanding after looking at thousands of brain scans and a lot of HRV measurements, that there's a way to actually teach people how to do that. And, and you don't have to be a mystic, you don't have to be a saint, you don't have to be a yogi, you could just learn the formula and what kind of effects would it require? So then we started measuring gene expression and we saw that in four days, people could change their gene expression. Uh, in four days, they could make genes, uh, uh, activate genes that make new neurons in their brain, not, not make new connections, but new neurons. Genes that promote you know, um, um, oxidative balance, genes that, that strengthen the immune system, genes that activate stem cells that go to damaged tissues and repair them. These are all fundamentally important genes for, for health. And um, it didn't matter what you eat, it didn't matter what you drink, it didn't matter what you did, it's just somehow if you came and you did it, what you believed in, this color of your skin, where you're from, none of that mattered. And, and so then we started measuring immune regulation. If you trade fear, if you trade pain, if you trade anger and aggression for an elevated emotion and teach people how to sustain that state, will their immune system get stronger? And we saw that people can strengthen their immune system dramatically in, uh, in a very short amount of time. We measured telomere lengths. Is it possible then to lengthen your life when your body's in balance and telomeres determine your biological age? And lo and behold, 75% of the people in the study lengthened their telomeres in 60 days. They changed their, they changed their life. They changed their future. They, they extended their life in some way. And so I got super hopeful about this. And then <clears throat> we started, you know, I wrote four books and 
What came along with that, Glenn, that was so exciting was the testimony. Nothing like seeing a person stand on the stage that came to the event in a wheelchair and is standing on the stage in front of an audience of 1,500 people as the example of truth and can walk normally. Nothing like a person with Parkinson's disease who has severe pain and tremors and can't walk in a uh, frozen face, smiling and holding their hand out with no tremors. It's nothing like seeing a person with stage four cancer that was at a previous week-long event that showed up a month later at the next week-long event with her scans to show that she had metastatic cancer spread throughout her entire body. And then all of a sudden the PET scan shows it's gone, not there any longer, zero, nothing. Blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, and it got crazy. And so we have evidence in our scientific studies and we have evidence in our testimony and evidence becomes the loudest voice. And it's the magic, it's the magic number when we have somebody who is the example of truth stand in front of an audience and they look like a normal person. They don't look like a, a movie star or they're not young and buffed and fit and look a certain way. They're just an average person. Mm -hmm. And they tell their story and it's not glamorous but they're triumphant and they kept overcoming and they kept showing up for themselves and kept believing in themselves. That's the four minute mile. That's that person that pierces a level of consciousness that says it's possible. Not only is it a footprint in the field, quantum field, but it's also evidence in three dimensional reality and people lean in. And this is the cool part. They lean in because there's truth looking them right in the face. And they'll say, if that person can do it, I can do it too. And just like an infection spreads amongst the community and creates disease, health and wellness becomes as infectious as disease. In our, in our events, we see people, I just watched a, a testimonial yesterday of a guy who came in a wheelchair. I mean, he was, he couldn't walk. He couldn't take more than a few steps, very debilitating neurodegenerative disease. He leaves the event, with, he leaves his wheelchair and his walker, and it's not the first person that happens. So that's evidence, you know. So then we started partnering with universities, and we said, okay, some of these people are having dramatic changes in their hearts, in their brains. And we started working with universities that have the sophisticated instrumentation to measure cellular biology. Thousands and thousands of metabolic reactions that are taking place and looking at the plasma and blood of people that do meditation. We started seeing then when we subjected their blood uh, to like a virus that behaves exactly like the COVID virus, that their body was immune uh, to the virus, the advanced meditators, it wouldn't enter the cell. And this is super compelling data because that says that, that there's something within us uh, that really, really has a a profound immunity to the environment. And we've isolated now the factors in the blood of advanced meditators that are so important for, for, for that. And then we started taking the advanced meditators blood and subjecting it to cancer cells, uterine cancer cells and seeing how the mitochondria, which are the engines of the cells that keep the cancer cell almost immortal drive the energy out of the mitochondria by 75%, took the wind out of the cells of cancer cells. We see people that have, a, we, we take advanced meditators blood and we subject it to people with uh, neurons that have Alzheimer's. And all of a sudden you see the gene downregulated. So there's something in the plasma that is, makes us very hopeful about human potential and the real key element, the most important element is it's not anything out there that's going to do it. It's all in here. And so I'm super hopeful, super excited about some of the stuff we're doing. We're, we're, I just was on the phone with a, a researcher, one of our researchers uh, beforehand here and before I got on this uh, podcast. And uh, this is a very empirical, well-published scientist that is so incredibly excited about what we're doing. So we have um, been on such, a, such an amazing journey. It's so fascinating, like just, just mind blown. And one of the things that came to my head was how do you, I suppose, when you started seeing all the evidence of it coming to light, what worked for you and you saw it on people, how do you take that all in and your energy because you're seeing this and like there's going to be a lot of people who have 
spontaneous remissions. But I mean, I always say to people, and I feel there's always a story there, is it that one person that truly made an impact? And how did that like send shivers down your spine or just go, wow, what we've created here is just incredible. Listen, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I, I consider myself a pretty open-minded person. I mean, I have a pretty good bullshit meter too. Like I, I have a truth <laughs> meter that like, I just, I'm a, I'm a practical person. Yeah. I don't want to talk about quantum superimposition if it doesn't change my life in any way. I want to know how it's going to affect my life. I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. So I consider myself a pretty open-minded person, but I have, you know, I'm skeptical about things because I want to challenge them in a way that I think it really helps people, right? So <clears throat> when I saw, you know, some of the dramatic changes take place, I was, I, 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 I I never thought in my lifetime that I would be witnessing what I'm in, what I witness in every single week long event that we've done. And we've done 30 of them now. And it's never been a disappointment. There's just a transformative thing that takes place that is way bigger than me. So when you see a person with a stroke who's blind in the quarter of their vision or has paralysis and can't move an arm, and you see that vision completely restored. And then you see <clears throat> the scan that shows there's no longer any blemish or damage to the visual field. You just, you can't go back to business as usual. You can't <laughs> go back to being the same person. You, once you know, you can't not know. <laughs> and, and, and it's so beautiful because Consciousness is awareness, and awareness is noticing and paying attention. So when you see a person who has a transformation, and you see the science that says in a week-long event, there'll be over 600 metabolic changes in 75% of the audience for the better in a one-week event. When When you know that, you're now you're aware of another possibility. That may not be the possibility that we think is free will to choose from knowns. This is now you're stepping outside. <clears throat> and when a person shows up and believes in themselves and does the work, <laughs> they're believing in possibility. You cannot believe in possibility and, and, and believe in yourself. You, not believe in yourself. You got to believe in yourself and believe in possibility. You got to believe in possibility. You got to believe in yourself. So, for me personally, I, I, it's way bigger than me. I'm very humbled on a regular basis. Every time I get another testimonial, uh, I say this person is speaking the truth. And, and it's, it's a footprint for somebody else to step into. And I think the world needs that more than ever. So for me, um, my greatest passion, my greatest joy, I think there's some... There's something in us, Glenn, that's so empathetic. Uh, now we're, we're, we have universities that are studying, we're studying people that can be healed remotely. You don't even need to be in their presence if you understand the science of quantum physics and you understand how to do it. You can hit a target and heal another person at a distance and there it is and there it's gone. Now, when you see that occur, There's some kind of empathy. I I drop in on the calls of these people that show up every single day of their life to heal another person. And they do at least three or four a day. And these people, they're not doing it because they want to be a healer. They're doing it because, well, how they feel when they see a mother who's comes on the Zoom call and says, my daughter was, you know, handicapped from birth. She had a traumatic birth. She's listless, unresponsive, never re- looked at her brothers. And all of a sudden, this kid is smiling at her brothers and trying to talk. And you watch the people on the Zoom call that are the healers. You see everyone all in tears. There's this empathy that takes place where we're contributing as a species to one another, that we were part of somebody's transformation. We gave in some way. Another one of us is better. And this kind of feeling of empathy, this feeling of connection is so profound that goes against all those uh, survival and stress emotions that create division and polarity and separation and and distrust. And, And so 
that's when community starts coming together. That's when we start to collaborate, cooperate, and, and, it, and it's got to be from the heart. So I'm super hopeful about um, well, what, what we're doing. Well, I think I, I, I would personally be terrible because the, the fact that anything these days can make me cry when it comes to community, I can bring people together through the mental health. And someone once said to me, how does it make you feel? And I'll sit in an event, sit back, not even speak, and just see that human connection. And you mentioned it quite a bit because one of the fundamentals that you mentioned as a characteristics was touching base. You talk about the science space, but you said a lot of people almost have that spiritual sense. And you keep mentioning this, stepping into their truth. And it's kind of something along my journey that I've realized that the way that I've rewired my brain from going through adversity to building this and it growing so fast has been really learning about stepping into my truth. And I did use meditation a lot through that, how it came. So I suppose my question would be in relation to the Imperfect the Perfect campaign and addressing well-being and mental health. When emotions are almost captured in that survival mode, what is happening in terms of neurologically, when many times we see a correlation between people fearing the future or living in the past, I suppose, how do we or could we create those habits to bring ourselves back? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> let's see if I can explain this as simple as possible. Um, living in stress is living in survival. Mm-hmm. And survival is a very primitive net mechanism that allows us to really, really adapt to an environment that's threatening or dangerous. And the moment you perceive a, a danger or a threat, you switch on an autonomic function in your body, the sympathetic nervous system, and there's an arousal. The arousal of those hormones causes a heightening of the senses because now we want to become more acute that there's a danger there. If there's a, if there's a, a tiger in the bushes and you hear something rumbling around and it's night, you're going to either run, fight, or freeze or, or hide. That's your choices. And so that works really well in survival for the short term because the arousal causes us feeling like we're more our body. We get a rush of energy. The arousal causes our brain waves to change and to move into a more alert state. We narrow our focus on what it is in the environment. We're giving it our attention, all of our attention. And now we're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future based on what we've known in the past. So we're overlaying a known into the future so that we can prepare. And normally when we don't know what it is, the unknown causes us to feel these primitive emotions of survival and it's best to run. It's best to fear the unknown. So the challenge becomes that that works really well for the short term. But when you switch on this system and you're mobilizing enormous amounts of the body's energy and resources for some threat in your outer world, there's no energy in your inner world for growth and repair. There's no energy for long-term building projects. And we start tapping the body's vital resources. And that's what creates mental health or physical health or spiritual disease, right? So because no organism can live in that emergency state for that extended period of time. It's like, there's a hurricane coming through Australia, you're not going to be thinking about remodeling your kitchen at, the, at that time. It's not a time for long-term projects, right? So now when we're in stress and we're in survival, the self is the most important. You don't trust. It's not a time to love. It's not a time to learn. It's not a time to communicate. Uh, it's not a time to be vulnerable. It's not a time to open your heart. It's not the time to sit down and close your eyes and go within. You would be eaten. The survival gene is switched on. And people spend 70% of their time living in a state. So then in that state where the arousal takes place, the brain moves into a heightened brainwave pattern called beta brainwave pattern. Now, as I said, that's like driving your sports car in first gear on the freeway. You, it's, a, it's the jump start, but you can't do it for a long period of time because in stress, stress is signaled by the loss of control not being able to predict the next moment, the unknown, or the perception that something's going to get worse. And when you're in that state, you start trying to control and predict everything in your life. And you shift your attention from one person to another person, to another problem, to another thing, to another place, to another object, uh, to a group of situations. And every one of those elements has a neurological network in the brain. So the arousal causes the brain like a lightning storm in the clouds to start firing out of order. 
starts firing incoherently. And when the brain is incoherent, we're incoherent. When the brain isn't working right, we're not working right. So then now the person is aroused in that state. It's never occurred to them that they could change that. In fact, they're telling you, I am this way because of my boss, because of my ex, because of my past, because of the news, because of the global situation, whatever it is. And what they're really saying is I'm using something in my outer environment to validate or justify why I feel this way. So then that means then they're also going to be dependent on something in their outer environment to make them feel better. And whether it's a drug or a, a treatment or a, a, whatever it is, a, a complaining, whatever it is that makes them feel better. And the moment they notice that they've done something and they've used something outside of them to make that feeling go away, they'll pay attention to what it was. And every time they feel that feeling, they'll become dependent on it. So now they're more dependent on their environment. So then the subconscious program is when things are good, you feel good. But when things are bad, you feel bad. So you're completely victim to your environment. And the environment is actually controlling the way you feel and think. Now, anything that controls the way you feel and think, you're victim too. So I say, Glenn, why are you in such a bad mood? Well, I'm in a bad mood because of this person, this circumstance, this, this situation in my life. What you're really saying is something in my outer environment is literally controlling my feelings, my emotions, and my thoughts. So then it turns out that when the person is in that state and they're in that aroused state, their heart is beating because the sympathetic nervous system switched on, but they're not running. They're not fighting, they're not hiding, they're stepping on the gas pedal and they're stepping on the brake. And the heart starts beating very incoherently. And incoherent waves in the brain and incoherent waves in the heart diminish energy. So energy goes out of the brain, energy goes out of the heart. We stop thinking clearly, we stop rationalizing very well. We can't plan for the future. We're uninspired in our heart. We don't trust, we can't feel gratitude, we can't feel appreciation, we can't feel love. It's not a time to feel any of those things. So then that's the beginning of disease, right? So the person starts thinking about their problems and they turn on that stress response just by thought alone. And if the hormones of stress push the genetic buttons that create disease, then your thoughts are going to make you sick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the question is, if your thoughts can make you sick, is it possible that your thoughts can make you well? And by the same means, if you're using every person, every circumstance in your life to reaffirm that dependency on that rush of emotions, then you become addicted to the life you don't even like. <laughs> and that's why change is so hard because you'd rather suffer and be in pain than take a chance in the unknown because the unknown, you can't predict it. So people cling to the familiar and cling to the known. And, and so they become dependent on the environment. So what we found out was, is there a way to make the brain more coherent? <clears throat> Is there a formula that we can teach people instead of narrowing their focus on the material world, narrowing their focus on everything known? What if they broaden their focus and they put it on nothing on space? If they broaden their focus and they, they, they open their awareness uh, uh, in this way, what happens to the brain? And we found the brain gets really organized. What if they traded fear for an elevated emotion and we taught them how to start working with their body? Now, here's the answer to your question. You practice that long enough, you close your eyes, you're not distracted by your environment, you're sitting down, you're not eating, you're not talking, you're not watching TV, you're not on your cell phone, um, you're, not, you're not smelling, you're not tasting, you're not feeling with your body, you're sitting still, you're not thinking about your schedule or what you got to do or what happened yesterday, and you're working with the body and you're understanding the process. And you keep settling the body down when it's aroused. You keep watching your body wanting to get up and do something, you keep bringing it back and you're training your body to a new mind. It turns out if you keep practicing this, the body finally surrenders to a new mind and there's a liberation of energy and the person releases a little of that anger. They release a little, bit, a little bit of that fear and the body can relax more into the present moment and energy moves into the heart. We've measured this so many times. Once energy makes it to the heart, the heart informs the brain, it's safe to create. It's safe to think about a possibility of how to get out of this situation. So then it's really good to do it with your eyes closed when there's soft music playing in the background and you're relaxed and your eyes are closed and you're in a safe environment, but that's training mm. because when it matters the most is when it's the hardest to do. And I don't like that answer at all. 
but it's the absolute truth. <laughs> I mean, when, it, when you're the most frustrated, when you're the most impatient, when you're the most agitated, when you're the most in the most amount of pain, is it possible then to dial down those survival emotions and practice getting back in your heart to shorten the refractory period? of your emotional reactions, because when you're living in those emotions, there's always a gap between the way things appear and the way things really are. And if you act during that time and you do something, you make a choice during that time, you'll always say the same thing. I should have never said that. I should have (laughs) never sent that email. I never sent that text because you were altered in some way. And Mm -hmm. that's when people need jerk, right? So in our events, Uh, In the past, we've seen people sustain this kind of coherence in their brain and heart for 45 minutes to an hour. They they know how to do it. But now the next step is to put them in a situation where they normally would feel fear or some survival emotion. And instead of throwing in a program and rushing going unconscious, teaching them how to self-regulate. So you put someone on a post 50 feet in the air. They're, you know, um, you know, I don't know. 25 meters up there and and you get somebody or 20 meters up there, you get somebody standing on that post and they're wearing a heart rate monitor. And it's not whether they succeed or fail. It's whether they can practice slowing that, that, that state down. And if they can do it there, they'll do it really well in their life. So, so then when everybody else is in fear, you seem to be calm and present. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is angry and impatient. You seem to be relaxed and, and poised, you know? So, so we now know that learning how to move from that state of survival to that state of creation is a skill and it takes practice. And when we do that and we're triumphant, um, we're no longer part of that same consciousness. We're in a different consciousness. And, and that is what gives people permission. When they observe you, they'll say, Glenn, you're really different than everybody else. Something's different about you because you're not showing up. Like uh, the collective, you're showing up in a different way, and that gives them permission to to try it out as well. Wow, you you, you pack so much in there, and I I've got last couple of questions, but one one of the things there that really really stands out, and I apologize, I'm always going to say fascinating because it just blows my mind. It's it's why I can literally see why you've been so sex, uh, successful is because you, you talk about the surrender, the truth, tapping into it, your head and heart connection, but ultimately you still have this childlike presence, this passion for what you do. And it's just, it, when all that matches, it's just, to me, it's when I'm listening to people speak and I'm listening to everything they're saying and there's certain things that I just, cause I'm so elevated picking out and listening to everything so integral those key connections there, what you talk about are just so, I could talk all day listening to you, but I, I, I want to get back to it. Last couple of questions, because I'm keen to hear more about your new online course, The Formula, which you briefly touched upon a little bit more, if you can expand on that. And you recently just wrapped a successful week-long advanced retreat in Denver, Colorado. I know that you've got an advanced follow-up in September in Marco Island, but it's already sold out. Is there a waiting list? Um, and what what else because i know that your schedule your schedule your bandwidth must be so limited but you do spend some time with your community you've got facebook group any other future events um yeah sure sure wow i mean i think you know our biggest challenge and i'll be really transparent is uh that our events really they sell out in 5 minutes you know and that's a, that's a challenge we have 9000 people on a waiting list most of the time because it's it's a happening place and so we're always thinking about better ways to serve. And, and so we have, um, you know, when people come to a week-long event, and we were scheduled to be in, in Australia, actually, um, this past week. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're supposed to run our event there, of course. And, um, you know, we're doing events. We've been doing events, again, in large numbers in, in the United States and um, since November. And one of the prerequisites to come to a week-long event is a progressive workshop. And, and that's really the basics, you know, to learn the language that we use to explain it. And I think science is that contemporary language of mysticism. And then give people some some really good practical meditations where they can start. Because if you come to a week long, we got to go. I mean, we got bodies to heal. We got lives to change. We got the mystical to experience. And you got to come ready. 
because I'm not going to wait for you. You got to come prepared. And so the progressive is a good preparation course. It comes with another course called the intensive, tons of content in there. But people would say, hey, uh, Dr. Joe, how can I get my boss into this? They don't want to watch the progressive workshop and or my husband, you know, he's a doubter or my best friend thinks I'm kind of loony, but but she's noticing changes in me. Uh, how do I get them interested? So we decided to do this simple thing called the well, simple course called the formula. And really, it's just 12, 30 to 40 minute um, um, brief teachings where I kind of explain the formula for personal change and transformation. And along with it comes uh, five meditations that build on one another to practice how to get to that place where you can begin to create and, and begin to change your energy. And, and nobody changes in, in their life until they, they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. It's the way it is. So <clears throat> I wanted to make it simple and easy there's a workbook that goes along with it to practice and it, 12 sessions for people to get some 30 minute, 40 minute chunks of information with some practical tools. Um, so that's an important thing. You know, we're thinking of uh, other ways to reach our community from a technical standpoint of a meeting. Uh, we've been doing meetings uh, in the last month here to do something that's never been done before that I'm super excited about. Um, but we do um, a Facebook. We have an Australia Facebook group. It's the official Facebook group. I just did a little Q&A uh, for that community just um, this past week, and, and it was super successful, and, and it was fun, you know. And, and, and uh, I, I think, um, you know, Aussies, for me, are, are people that are very, very practical. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're amazing in that way. And, and so um, uh, we, have the, we have a Facebook uh, Live that we just did one here called uh, Leaving the Monastery. And, that's for anybody that has been to a week-long event that wants to stay current. Uh, we have a, um, a, uh, a subscription-based uh, Q&A uh, thing that we do the last Thursday of every month that's called um, uh, uh, Dr. Joe Live, which would, uh, you know, usually uh, every Thursday, but if you're in another country, it could be late in the evening or the next day. And it's just an hour and 15 minutes where um, I develop a concept or an idea to keep people understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then we open it up to questions. And, and, and every other month, I do an hour of questions. And we get thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of emails uh, on a weekly basis. And the best way for me to, to answer a lot of those questions is really to just answer the question on a, on a call. Uh, and, and if you can't make it, uh, then you know you get the, you get the, the MP3 file uh, or link uh, to listen to. It's yours to keep. So. Uh, it's super popular. We have a huge community all over the world um, that um, that's involved in the Dr. Joe Live, and I, we're always thinking of of more ways to to serve more and to serve better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's one thing. I've got one last question for you, and you talked about it there in in terms of energy and everything's energy. And I think along my journey where it's come to, I will say that what you emanate when it, when it comes off you like for me personally this journey has took me on such a big thing and i always i was never open to spirituality it came to me and funnily enough it's actually 444 right at the minute the energy that you portray like i don't know whether you you've got this huge white light around you every time you move <laughs> so whether that's a quantum field the energy i don't know it's just Every time you're moving, I'm like, all I can see is a white light all the way around you. And that's something along my journey that I've, I've gone into this kind of internal and surrender and head and heart and everything. But last question, in everything that you've gone through, I like to ask every single person, you talk about community a lot, which is the most important thing in bringing together as a collective. What does out of everything you've done, being imperfectly perfect mean to you when we can own our flaws and what is your hope for humanity through everything you do wow i'm i'm i uh, i'm super hopeful uh for humanity i i study uh, chaos theory quite a bit and and just because if you understand how systems change uh, <clears throat> when there's a system that's moving into disorder or disruption the first thing that happens is that there's a wobbling a polarity and imbalance and the polarity gets more and more extreme. And, and that's what we're seeing in the world is extreme polarity. And then that's followed by this period of disorder, this period of chaos. 
And <clears throat> what they've found about chaos is that really it's just unpredictable order. There's an unraveling of the known, of the way things have been. And the unraveling energetically is novelty. <laughs> it's new information and it's just not known. So, but what happens in time is it's uh, chaos. It really looks chaotic, but there's really, if you watch it, the algorithms when they computer generate this, all of a sudden it'll turn into new patterns, into new orders. So I think we're at the point in history where there's just, um, where, I mean, I don't know about you, but nothing feels right to me. Something doesn't feel right. And I think there's so many of us that are looking for the right information. And there's so many things out there that uh, people are starting to question, which I think is so healthy. I think it's a really an amazing place. And I think that the biggest thing is that we can't face uh, these challenges and this chaos uh, in the same emotions that has actually created them. We can't live in fear. We can't be hostile. We can't be prejudiced. We can't be segregated. We can't uh, be impatient. We can't demonstrate. That's all the stuff that's that's unraveling right now. And, and we have to really be, we have to really demonstrate order, coherence, you know, and, and, and give people, you know, the, the permission, you know, in a sense, uh, on some level uh, to do the same. So I'm a work in progress. And, you know, for me, if I'm alive the next day, I got another chance at life, you know, and, and I always ask myself, you know, just really like uh, the same questions in the beginning of the day, who do I want to be? And who do I not want to be? And if I could sit down and remind myself how I'm not going to think, how I'm not going to act, how I'm not going to speak, how I'm not going to feel and become so conscious of those unconscious states of mind and body that I would not fall prey to them the entire day, that's a victory. Mm -hmm. And that's going from, uh, to a greater uh, level of understanding about myself. And if I said to myself, who do I want to be when I open my eyes? And how do I want to live this day? What thoughts do I want to fire and wire in my brain? And I start firing and wiring them with intention and attention. I'm going to put new hardware in my brain. And if I keep doing it enough times, the hardware is going to be a software program. And that's going to be the new voice in my head that says, Joe, you can do it or be patient or be kind or whatever. If I said, how do I want to be in my staff meetings, on my Zoom calls? How do I want to be with my children? How do I want to be with my, my, um, uh, my friends? How do I want to be when I'm alone, when I'm in traffic, when I'm rushing? How, how is there another way to be? It turns out if you can close your eyes and rehearse mentally how you're going to be in that day, if you're truly present, the brain doesn't know the difference between what's going on in your outer world and what you're imagining. The brain is literally having the experience and experience enriches circuitry in the brain. So you're installing hardware. Keep rehearsing it. The hardware becomes a software program. And who knows? You just may start acting that way automatically. That's the name of the game. And then you become familiar with it. And if you said, God, what is my weak point? What is my weak emotion? Where do I default to in my life? Do I get impatient? Do I get angry? Do I get disrespectful? Okay, if I could today teach my body emotionally how I want to feel, and I got to remember this feeling, and I got to keep my attention on it, I got to keep it alive with my awareness and feel the feelings of my future before it happens. And if I can maintain this modified state of mind and body my entire day, independent of any condition in my environment, any drive, any need, any emotion, any habit in our, my body, and independent of time, I can sustain it. There should be something weird or something unusual or something new to show up in my life. And then at the end of my day, I could say in my imperfectly perfect, imperfectly perfect self, how'd you do? How'd you do today? You know, how do you, how did you do? Where did you fall from grace? Where did you lose it? Where, how could you do it better tomorrow? And if you could come up with an answer, what would love do? How would, what would greatness look like? Remind yourself that I think that would demystify the process mm -hmm. of really falling in love with yourself and falling in love with life. And uh, we know that because we see people in some of our studies that have not just normal heart coherence. The amplitudes are three times higher than normal. That's not a little love. Yeah. That's a whole lot of love. Mm -hmm. Not a little brain coherence. So much brain coherence that the statistical probability from a mathematical standpoint on the research says that sustaining that state is impossible, that it would be a random event, a momentary event that would last for a millisecond 
and we have people sustaining that state for 15 minutes. I know that it's possible, right? So, so then for me personally, uh, I'm the happiest when I'm learning and I'm the happiest when I'm changing, when I'm in when my skin's in the game, when I'm out of the bleachers and I'm on the playing field and it takes work and it takes attention. And that's just not what uh, most people want to do unless there's crisis, unless there's diagnosis, unless there's disease, unless there's loss or trauma in some way, betrayal. That's when people make up their mind to change. And so I think that I'm, I think the community uh, in closing is the future uh, because I don't think there is a teacher. I don't think there's a governor. I don't think there's a world leader. I don't think there's a, a, a doctor or a corporation uh, that really has uh, the answers uh, to what we're looking for. And community uh, is the solution. If you can get a group of people that really believe in each other, that really trust one another, that really inform one another, that really support one another, that really acknowledge one another, that respect one another, that, that heal one another, that, that shine for one another so that they could shine. Uh, I think that is the answer because you see a group of birds all moving in the same direction or fish, a school of fish. In, in adaptation, in biology, that kind of that kind of coherence that's created, that's called emergence. It gives the appearance of a larger organism. <laughs> there's power in numbers. And yeah. if you study that, you think, there's, you think there's a leader that everybody's following, like it's a top-down phenomenon. It turns out it's not. It's a bottom-up phenomenon. Everybody is leading. Same, same mind. One mind, one heart. And, and I think there's a stigma, Glenn, that, that comes with leadership. You know, if you lead with too much conviction, you're going to lose your life. I mean, look at how many countless leaders, Martin Luther King, William Wallace, Joan of Arc, uh, anybody who uh, made a difference, Gandhi made a difference in the world, um, usually lost their life. And, and, um, but, you know, I, I'm so hopeful because uh, if everybody's leading, you just can't take out everybody, you know, and, and, I, think, and I think that's the answer. <laughs> Well, you know what, you certainly, you, you are leading from the front in everything that you do and you're making a difference to millions. And I just want to say on behalf of the campaign, on behalf of my community, all the community around the world, all the work you do, very, very grateful. Just want to, I, I, I will actually, everything that I've done, I'll, I'll give up to God and I'll say for somebody who knew nobody to initiate a community himself, to take it this big and to be now sat in front of yourself, I find it an absolute honor and privilege. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. I know you are a busy guy. So I will put all the links up to where people can find you um, to try and get on that waiting list of 9,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll have solutions way before then. We, we're working on some great solutions. And hopefully we can get out of lockdown, even though we've extended so you can come back to Australia because that would be amazing. But um yeah, I just want to say thank you on behalf of us all. And and guys, I will put all the links up to Joe. Make sure you click on and you find out more information about where you can book onto the courses and the formula, the new online course. Until then, guys, when it comes to mental health, please keep having the hard conversations because it's the hard conversations that save lives. Until next time, guys, thank you. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.